Our scripture passage for today comes from Matthew 1. For those of us who have been hanging out throughout these last three weeks of Advent, you know that we've been hanging out with John the Baptist, who, you know, can be a little bit of a downer sometimes. So uh, we have a break from John the Baptist today. Yeah. <laughs> today we're going to talk about Joseph instead. We're looking at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. You can find those on the back of your order of worship. You can also read along on the screens. I tend to be someone who likes to close my eyes and just see if I can hear them anew again, particularly passages like this that we read over and over. So whatever way you are inviting the Spirit to speak to you, please join me as uh, we listen for God's word. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But when he had no union, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Friends, please join me as we pray. God, we are grateful that you continue to speak into the lives of humanity that you continue to speak in ways that are quiet and still. And so in the hurriedness of this season, in the busyness of our to-do lists, we pray, God, that you will create stillness in us. We pray that we will be able, through that quiet, silent voice that you spoke to Elijah with, that you spoke into creation. We pray that we will hear you as you intend us to hear you, even though we don't always listen too well, even though we stumble over our words. God, may we know more about you today than we did yesterday. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this might sound sort of funny given the profession I'm in and what we do here every single Sunday, but love is one of the most difficult topics for me to preach about. And so I was trying to figure out why this is so, why it's like this. As we came and approached today, Love Sunday for Advent. And I don't think that I have a really satisfying answer as to why preaching about love is so difficult, but I do have some thoughts. 
I think that love is difficult to preach about because I think that talking about love can so easily sound trite or aloof. Sometimes talking about love makes me think of a caricature of a hippie. You know, some person who is too detached from social norms or too unconcerned with the circumstances of others or really just too stoned to actually convey the height and the depth and the breadth and the ge- of genuine love with any passion or conviction. Saying it's all about love sounds less like love to me and more like the encouragement to just kick back, chill out, let it be as it will be. And I don't think that kicking back and chilling out is what all of love is. Another thought that I had about why preaching about love can be so difficult is because we can't say, I love you to everyone, even though we are called to love everyone. Let me explain what I mean. Sometimes having limits on the words that we use puts limits on our actions. I can tell my husband that I love him, and I do. Thank you. I can tell my children or my parents that I love them. I can tell some of my women friends that I love them. But after that, we start to hit some limits of who I can say I love you to. For example, Andy and I have been good friends with a couple, Shovel and Caroline, for nearly 15 years. They know more about us and more about our marriage than nearly anyone else in our lives. They have been there for us in some of the most difficult times that we have had, and we have been there for them. And Andy and I truly, honestly, genuinely, we love them deeply. But we don't tell them that. No, because that would make it awkward, and that would be weird, and they would feel really uncomfortable about it. And so even though of any friends that we have in the world, it would make the most sense for us to tell them that we love them, we don't. Because we fear that the awkwardness would change the friendship. Am I right? <laughs> love can be really hard to talk about because we're not really socially conditioned to talk about it. My last thought about why love can be really difficult to talk about, to preach about, is because in this very moment, between all of us, I don't know what each of you has in mind when I say that word, love. Do you think about love in the way that you think about chocolate or football or golf? Do you think about some romanticized version of love? that is separate and other from the world that we live in? A love that is either always perfect in the movies or is only perfect in heaven? When I talk about love, do you think about the affection that you have for your spouse or for your children? Or maybe you think about love as God, God's self, as is characterized in Scripture. How can I talk to you about love when each and every single person here, including me, has our own definition, comes to the conversation with a different set of assumptions and experiences and desires concerning love? Sort of seems like we're 
done over before we even get to the point. My friends, love can be really, really difficult to talk about and to put into words and to articulate. No doubt about that. Which is no doubt why God sent Jesus down as the incarnation of love to humanity. Because love can often be conveyed more fully in a hug or in a touch than it can be conveyed by sentences and phrases. Because love is more easily observed than it is understood. And because love is first experienced before love is comprehended. In our lectionary passage for today, which is the last Sunday of Advent, we are asked to look for love in the story of Joseph and Mary. Whereas the book of Luke focuses on telling us Mary's version of the story, Matthew sets out to describe Joseph's point of view. And it's a powerful story, even in its familiarity, because we see so many aspects of how the Spirit works in just a few short verses. In this one story alone, we see the faith of Mary, the mercy of Joseph, the sovereignty of God, we see the fulfillment of a prophecy, and we also, we also see love. But love in this story is not a love that follows any predictable storyline. Love in this story about Joseph and Mary is not about chocolates and hearts and Cupid's arrow. It's not about two crazy kids going against their parents' wishes because they are so infatuated with one another. In this story, love is not about kicking back and letting go so that what will be will be. In this story, love is about one thing for one purpose. Love is about breaking the status quo. Love is about breaking the accepted rules for the purpose of giving life to the full. Love in this story is about breaking rules for the purpose of giving life to the full. In first century Palestine, there were some very specific rules about marriage and babies. And then on top of those rules that existed about marriage and babies, there were also more rules that were developed by religious leaders sort of as a fence around the first set of rules. So you have these rules, and then they thought, we really don't want anyone to come close to those rules, so we're going to create another set of rules right here, right, just in case. So there's another set of rules created as an attempt to protect anyone from even getting close to the real rules. The rules said that you couldn't have babies or practice making babies until you were married. And just to make sure no one was breaking those rules, then the rules also said that you had to wait a year in order between that moment that you were engaged and the moment that you got married, just to make sure that no one had broken those rules or had been tempted to break those rules before the actual marriage took place. And so it was during that waiting time between the engagement and the actual marriage that Mary became pregnant, which is awkward. Because now, according to the rules, not these rules, but these rules, 
Mary should have been outed by Joseph and she should have been stoned to death by the community because those were the rules of what happened when you broke the rules. Joseph, however, decided that he would go by another way, quietly leaving, quietly breaking off their engagement, quietly sending Mary off on her own to birth and raise a child that he knew wasn't his. He wasn't going to follow the rules of the elders, but he wasn't going to break those rules either. He was going to follow his own rules. Which might sound sort of strange and unholy and disobedient in an era where there were so many rules about the rules and rules about what happens when you break the rules. But our passage points out that Joseph was not considered to be a lawbreaker. Far from it, our passage today describes Joseph as righteous. And righteous because he was planning on breaking the rules. Because he was planning to handle the situation with Mary very, very quietly. I think that it's funny if we pause to think about it because I think that we can often think of people who are righteous as people who never break a rule, who always follow the way that it's laid out to be, be it in scripture or by the church or by the law or by what the pastor says or whatever word you use to convey authority, right? We think of righteous people as people who are always right by the law. But as one commentator points out, Elizabeth Johnson, she says, in Matthew, righteousness is not defined as a slavish adherence to the letter of the law, but by faithfulness shaped by mercy. That is what righteousness is, faithfulness shaped by mercy. According to the book of Matthew, righteousness isn't living life in rote, predictable ways. Instead, being righteous is living by the ever-moving and dynamic rules of love. By the rules of grace and mercy held in tension with the rules of justice and promise. There's no rote way to do that. According to Matthew, nothing about righteousness is rote because nothing about love is rote. Joseph was described as righteous by the way that he was planning to quietly divorce Mary, which means that his decision to then marry Mary after hearing from the angel wasn't an act of bravery, then it was just an act of common sense. Elizabeth Johnson says again, she says, it's important to note that the first decision by Joseph arises before an angel appears to him in the dream. What he learns from the angel causes him to change direction and to take Mary as his wife, a decision that no doubt was made easier by his not having her stoned and making a public fuss. Yet it is Joseph's first decision to set Mary aside that is attributed to his righteousness. The second decision is simply a response to new information. It is the stability of Joseph's character in the face of an unstable situation that makes it possible for the story to move through to its end. It is the stability of his character. And that's exactly what happened. Joseph took Mary as his wife. He named the baby Jesus. He raised him as his own. He carried on building a family. He didn't appear to hide. He didn't appear to apologize. He didn't appear to ever explain. 
We know that there would have been whispering and we know that there would have been ridicule and we know that there would have been condemnation. But he made that decision, followed through because of who he was all the same. And in a time where the rules were of utmost importance in preserving order in society, where shame and honor were considered legitimate grounds for life and death, Joseph, in his righteousness, broke the rules with the confidence of God's command behind him. I think then it's not very surprising that Jesus goes on to preach about rule-breaking to that same society 30 years later. If we were to continue on in Matthew, Matthew 15, Jesus reacts to some accusations of the rule-makers and the rule-keepers of society by saying, what do you use your rules, why do you use your rules to play fast and loose with God's commands? You cancel God's command by your rules. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping God, but they don't mean it. In other words, Jesus tells the rule makers and the rule keepers that they're missing the point. The point of God's law was to and is to transform us into a more holy people. Not just to act good, but to be good. But the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they responded to God's law intended for our hearts by creating rules and laws of their own. I don't think it was out of bad intentions, my friends. I think that they were trying and intending to make it easier to follow God's law. But in the end, they only managed to lose sight of God's law completely because the faith that they had in their own rules to keep them from breaking the law superseded the purpose of the law itself. They wanted to look like they were doing the right thing, but they weren't doing the right thing. I only mention this because I think that we have a tendency to do the same. We too have a tendency to make up our own benchmarks of living life to the full rather than conforming our lives to God's benchmarks of living life to the full. We have a tendency to look at the places where we fail and then justify them by the places where we succeed. We admit that we don't always follow what the scripture says. We admit that we don't always pray as God calls us to pray. We admit that we don't love as God loves us to love. And then we say, but you know, I try my best to be a good person and certainly that has to count for something, right? We cringe at scripture's call to care for the foreigner in our midst and to embrace the prisoner and to financially support the poor. Then we pat ourselves on the back for not missing a Sunday in worship. You see, my friends, we too like to make up our own rules that we judge ourselves by, and so we too have a tendency to miss the point of what God is trying to do in us. We see through this story of Joseph and through the words of Jesus himself that God is not interested in our rules. God could care less. And we know that because God breaks our rules all the time. God broke human rules when God deemed a teenage girl to bear love into the world as an unwed mother. 
God broke human rules when he opened up the heavens to reveal angels singing a chorus, not to kings, but to shepherds. God broke human rules when he poured the infinite of God's being into one finite body of an infant to become a man. God breaks our human rules all the time because God isn't interested in our rules. God is interested in our hearts. God is not interested in the amount of our tithe. God is interested in our heart of generosity. God is not interested in what we believe and what we say on social media. God is interested in what we believe in the quiet times that we are alone. God is not interested in who we may appear to be. God is interested in who we actually are and are becoming. You've heard me say it before and you will hear me say it again. For God, it is not first about what we do. It is first about who we are. It is not first about what we do. It is first about who we are. And so today, we anticipate the love of God coming to us in the person of Jesus. But what is this love that we are anticipating? My friends, I think the good news is that God is committed to breaking our rules at every single turn so that we can experience life more fully than we can provide for ourselves. I think that the love of God is seen in our lives when God takes down the fences that we put up between one another or between us and the Spirit so that we can stand in direct and vulnerable connection to Spirit and to one another. The story of God is a story about our rules being broken and falling down around our feet so that the love of God can pour in and surround us and envelop us and swaddle us with a transforming touch of love held more closely to us than our own skin. Oftentimes, I think that we believe that love is best expressed in letting people be as they are, right? And not pushing them and not bothering them and not challenging them. And there are times for that. I'm not saying there aren't. But I also know that God loves us too much to leave us as we are. And there is more to be experienced than the love that we dictate for ourselves or for others by creating the rules ourselves. And my friends, that is why Jesus is coming. That is why Jesus is coming and that is what we are expecting as Advent now draws to a close. We are expecting for the new rules of God's love to break into our world, to break open our hearts and to break this society into different pieces. Pieces that reflect not our own rules, our own limits, our own brokenness, but the eternal reflection of God's kingdom.